Welcome to the Revo Podcast. Revo Church is one church in multiple locations with a vision to spark a revolution of life change through Jesus. We hope to accomplish this through our core values of love big, serve hard, live bold, grow deep, and move forward. For more information on our service times and locations, please visit our website at discoverrevo.com. Yes, let's go. Man, this is going to be fun. You do not want to miss uh, the next eight weeks. Hard to believe. Like I, I went on our website, and, and you can look at all of the sermons, and, and you can break them down into what book of the Bible they come from. So if you ever have a question about a passage that you're reading and you want to see if we've ever hit on it in a sermon, like you can filter them out. And, and you go to that page, and it shows you all of the books of the Bible. And Revelation, like you can't click on it because we've never done a single sermon here at Revo from the book of Revelation. So I'm, I'm fired up about this, excited about it. it it's really weird, though, because uh, that we've never preached out of this before because Revelation is one of the most misunderstood books in all of the Bible. I've heard more about the book of Revelation in the past like five or ten years than, than, I, have, than I have ever. Uh, you ever met a doomsday prepper? Right? Like maybe you've seen these people that have these underground bunkers and uh, they have enough canned food and freeze-dried MREs to last for like 25 years. Well, they'll tell you, a lot of them will tell you they get that from the book of Revelation. Um, because in, in Revelation chapter 6, they say this is the sign of the, the, the underground bunkers and how we're going to survive the end of the world. Uh, if you've ever met a Jehovah's Witness, their, their entire faith is, is built on this, and their viewpoint of eternity is built on the book of Revelation. Because in, in chapter 7 of the book of Revelation, it says heaven, I don't know if you know this or not, but it, it says uh, they think that it says heaven has a seating capacity. That only 144,000 people are actually going to get into heaven. And, and the only way that you can be one of the 144,000 people that get into heaven is if you are on Team Jehovah's Witness. And can, like, can you imagine if you were on Team J-Dub and you were 144,001 and you got to the gate and they were like, you're going to have to wait for somebody to leave before you come in. I don't know. So there's, there's that. That's, that's what they um, believe. Did you know that some people believe in aliens and UFOs and extraterrestrials based on the book of Revelation? You can read uh, Revelation 9 and Revelation chapter 12. Those are the chapters that they point to. And they said, look, UFOs, ETs, real deal, man. It's, it's in the Bible. Um, there have been so many end-of-the-world countdowns, and they're all linked to the latter part of the book of Revelation because there are people that think, if I can just nail the timeline down of this book, I can connect kind of the, uh, the ambiguous language in, in Revelation. I can connect it to world history. And then you can do the math and pinpoint the exact day that the world is going to end. And, and many of those days have come, and we are still here. And uh, so undoubtedly nobody got the math right yet, but that's what they'll point to. They'll say, no, if you, just, if you do the math right and, and you look at the timeline against history, then we can figure it out. Even in the past six months, uh, people have used Revelation chapter 13 as the reason why they don't want to get the COVID vaccine. Because they're like, Nathan, this is the mark of the beast, bro. You need to look in Revelation 13. And I'm like, okay, I will. I will check that out immediately. It's amazing what people will say, and they'll attribute that and connect it um, to this book. And so those are just some of the stories of why you know I've never preached from the Revelation, because y'all are crazy, man. Like, some of the stuff y'all say is wild. And so well, here's what I want to do. Over the next eight weeks, I want us to take a look at it. 
Uh, maybe we can provide some clarity and uh, maybe everybody can then take their tinfoil hats off and wad them up and throw them away. And, and we can figure out what the Bible means for us today and, and what God is speaking to us um, through this book um, together. And so the, the book of Revelation is actually written by a guy named John. John was one of the original 12 disciples. And um, John had a vision and scripture says that an angel came to him in a vision and gave him the words that he wrote down in the book of Revelation. And so he wrote them down, and this, this vision was from Jesus. The angel said, this is what Jesus wants you to write down and deliver this to seven churches. And we see at the beginning of the book of Revelation, there are seven churches that these letters were written to, and all of the letters circulated around all seven churches. And, and so here's what we're going to do over the next eight weeks. We're going to take a look at each one of the seven churches that we find in the book of Revelation and kind of unpack, like, what does this mean for us 2021 today in, in our local setting? And, and that, those will be the first seven weeks. And then we're going to do something cool on the, on, on the eighth week, uh, something unique that, that, I, that I'm really looking forward to as it connects to the series. But in, in the book of Revelation, if you turn all the way, it's the last book of the Bible. The first chapter is an introduction, like, Here's John, and here's how he came up with this, uh, writings, and who he's delivering it to. But chapter 2 actually begins with the very first letter to the church. And th this church, the first recipient of the letter is the church of, of Ephesus. And so in chapter 2, verse 1, here's how this series of letters starts. It says, to the angel, or to the messenger, to the pastor of the church in Ephesus, write, these are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. It's already weird, man. We are one verse into it. And we're talking about lampstands and stars and angels and messengers. What's going on here? Well, here's what we know about the church of Ephesus. This is actually a, a pretty popular church, one of the most well-known churches in all of the New Testament. Um, one of the books of the Bible was written to the church in Ephesus. Paul wrote the book of Ephesians to this church. Uh, two more books of the Bible, 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy, were written to the pastor of the church in Ephesus. This, this Ephesians church was a big church led by a really young guy by the name of Timothy. And so throughout the books of 1 and 2 Timothy, we read about the dynamics of this church in uh, Ephesus and, and like what it's all about. We read in the book of Acts, there are a lot of stories about the book of, of uh, or about the church in Ephesus. Um, John, the guy that wrote the book of Revelation, uh, he actually wrote the Gospel of John, you know, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. He also wrote 1 John, 2 John, and 3 John. We gotta get more creative with these names, but that's what he said. Uh, John, 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, uh, he actually lived in Ephesus and was a part of the local church. And, and so, uh, so many books, about a third of the New Testament was either written to or written out of the church that's in Ephesus. I mean, this was like the poster child for Christian churches here in the first century. And the, the book starts by saying there is a, a letter written to this church and John says this is a vision that he had from an angel that is from Jesus. Like, can you imagine that? Like, can you imagine walking out to your mailbox and there's a letter in it addressed to you, the church. Remember, the church is not a building. The church is a group of people. To the church, and, and it's from Jesus, right? I don't even know if I'd open that letter up. 
Like, I don't even know if I really want to know, like, oh, no, like, are you serious right now? Like, this is this the equivalency of in elementary school when you get called to the principal's office? I know that never happened to any of you guys, but, like, let me tell you, it's not a good feeling. Jesus is going to write you a letter and tell you how you're doing? Tell you, like, hey, these are the areas that you're doing well, and, and these are the areas that, that you need some improvement on? Like, what, like what, would Jesus, what would a letter look like that Jesus would write to you about your life? How intimidating would that be? But here it is to the church in, in Ephesus, and he starts out with this seemingly cryptic language. He says, uh, Jesus holds the seven stars in his right hand, and he walks among the seven lampstands. Well, we learn in Revelation chapter 1 what those two words mean. The seven stars were actually the seven pastors or leaders of these specific churches, and the lampstands were the churches. See, the church is supposed to be a light unto the world and, and, and the light of the gospel and shine light into the darkness. And so these churches were like a lamp on a stand in the city that would show light to the darkness around it. And so he was writing this, but, but, but this was during a time. Here's why this is so important. Jesus is saying to these pastors, to the people that call this church home, he's saying, look, I'm, I'm with you. I see you. I, I understand you. I know what's going on around you. And the reason why that would have been so important for these people is because this church at the moment was under extreme persecution. And to be able to hear that, listen, God sees you. God knows what you're going through. I got your back. I'm working. I have you in my right hand, the hand of authority. Like, I've got all of this under control. In the midst of persecution, that would have been a powerful thing. Now, let me clarify what persecution is, because some people today feel like, I'm being persecuted because the government's making me wear a mask in the post office. Okay, stop. That's not what persecution is. These are people that are literally being killed for their faith. It's what's going on in Afghanistan right now. If they find out that you're a Christian, they kill you. A little bit different than the post office with a mask, right? And so in the midst of that, Jesus writes a letter to them and says, I got you. I see you. I know you. I understand where you're going through. I hear you. I'm watching out for you. I'm in your midst. Like just being reminded of the presence of God during a very difficult time. And so he starts out with that introduction. Now in verse 2, Jesus gets right into like giving the pats on the back. This is the compliments. The, these are the thumbs up that Jesus says. Like Jesus looks at this church and says, let me tell you what you're doing well. Man, I'm so, so proud of you all for doing these things. And in verse 2, he says, I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people that you've tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. Jesus says, you, you want to know what you are really good at? I'm so proud of you all for doing this. He says, y'all are famous for your deeds. The way that you meet needs in the community, the way that you give, the way that you serve, the way that you are loving people, like, this church has a reputation. Like, all the other churches are, are, are trying to be like, like Ephesus when it comes to your deeds. Y'all are knocking it out of the park. You're just, you're doing such a great job in that area. You're feeding the poor and, and serving the needy and reaching out to the community. And, and, and I'm, I'm so proud. Hey, thumbs up on that. A plus on that. 
You are known for the good things that you do in service of others. The second thing is, is he says this, not only your deeds, but your hard workers. These people are grinders. I'm not, I'm not talking about like your relationship with Jesus is on Sunday from 11 to 12. I mean, these people were serving Jesus Sunday through Saturday. Any time of the day or night, if there was a need, they would meet it. If there was a work to be done, they would do it. If there was some way that they could get involved, Jesus looks at them and said, Man, I have never seen people that are willing to get up early and stay up late. And in all of their life, you haven't categorized this Jesus thing. Like all of your life is about it. If you see a need at work, you meet it. If you got an opportunity to tell people about Jesus in, like in a restaurant on a Friday night, you do it. You, you're just tirelessly hard workers. And so you got a reputation for being that. I want you to work as hard at this gospel message that the Ephesians are. So he pats them on the back for that. Third thing he says, you're doing this right. You got the head game right. Theologically, Nobody messes with the church at Ephesus. There are people that would come into the church and they would try to preach a different message and, and try to pull people away from the soundness of the gospel. And, and the church, like, I don't know if this is like the Bible debate team that called Ephesus home, but nobody wanted to come into the church of Ephesus with bad theology because you would get set straight like in a minute. Like anybody in the church knew how to recognize, whoa, whoa first of all, that's not what the Bible says and that's not who Jesus is, and that's not what we're called to do. So you need to slow your roll real quick. Nobody wanted to mess with the church in Ephesus. They were so knowledgeable. Nobody knew the Bible as much as they did. Nobody studied the Bible. No one had grounded theology in Jesus like this church. And Jesus is like, love that. Love that. When it comes to being smart about what the Bible says and knowing it and having it memorized and, and, and really knowing who God is and what he's done for you. You guys? A plus. Doing great. Pat on the back. Last thing he says is, is this. You are also known for your perseverance. I get it. It's been hard. You're persecuted for your faith. There have been times when your life was threatened. But you know what? You didn't back down. You didn't give up. You, you, you didn't turn your back on your faith. There were times where financial strains were put upon you because of your faith. You were penalized for that. But you didn't run away. You didn't quit. You didn't back down. You didn't let that scare you. Nobody at this church threw in the towel just because they thought there might be some negative consequences. You know, culture looked at you and said, man, you're so outdated. You're, you're so irrelevant. I can't believe you would think that. I can't believe you would say that. Like, kind of get with the times. Why are you so old-fashioned? They tried to sway what you thought, but you didn't budge a single inch. And you love those people, but you stayed firm in what the Bible told you and what, what Jesus had called you to do. And, and I know it's been hard and it's been a long season, but you didn't quit. It'd be the equivalent if, if Jesus said, hey, you know, what? I know the pandemic has been going on, but not a single person in here hit the pause button on their faith. Not a single person. You continue to worship. You, you continue to figure out what it means to be the church outside of the four walls when we couldn't join inside of the four walls. You continue to give generously. I know the economy is crazy and there's so much uncertainty in the world. That didn't affect you. You've been generous and open-handed with your whole life regardless of what happens. You're so steady. You've persevered through it. We can count on you to do that. Those are the things as he ticks down the list like, First Baptist Church in Ephesus, you got it going on, right? 
Everybody knows you. Everybody loves you. Everybody wants to be like you. And then in verse 4, the tone turns. He says, yet. I know I've been patting you on the back and thumbs up and A plus and here's what you're good at, what you're good at and here's what I'm so, I'm so proud of you for this. But yet, I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love that you had at first. Other versions say you have lost your first love. The church at Ephesus was planted 30 years prior to this letter. And so, you know, when it first started, man, they were fired up. They were loving the community. Like every day was a gift. They were just glad to be together. But, but Jesus here through the Apostle John, he says, but, 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 but let's, let's do a check now. 30 years later, and here's the problem. You're still gathering. You're still singing the songs. You're still reading your Bible every day. You're still giving. You're still going through the motions. But look. The first love is gone. There's no passion behind what you do anymore. There's no heart. It just seems like you're going through the motions. <laughs> Jesus uses this relational language here and essentially says this. It feels like for you, the honeymoon's over. You know, when you first get married, there's that phase where you're just like nothing your spouse can do is ever wrong and everything they say is cute and you're in the honeymoon phase and you're just like, ah, don't worry about anything, honey. Love will pay the bills and we'll always be happy and together. And it's perfect. This 600 square foot apartment, this is perfect. We're together. It's us. We don't have a kitchen table, but that's fine. We can eat on TV trays as long as we're together, right? The first love. Jesus said, remember what it was like when you first met me? When your life was first changed by Jesus? Remember that? Remember how passionate it was? Remember how exciting it was? And he said, yeah, you're still attending, you're still reading your Bible, you're still praying, but it's empty. It just feels like you're checking the boxes off. All the love is gone. I started thinking about what this first love is, and it kind of made me go back to like when, when Elizabeth and I first met. We started dating when we were in the uh, 10th grade. When I was in the 10th grade, she was in the 11th grade, older woman, no big deal. Um, so when, when we started dating, like it, it was like, I, I don't even want to, I, I, I cringe when I think about what I said and what I did in the name of love when we were first, like when we were, just, I was just head over heels with this girl, whatever love means in the 10th grade, right? <laughs> However you can process that. I, I remember I would write uh, uh, Elizabeth love notes. Here's the first thing that I want you to write down. When, when you talk about what is the true love, what is the first love, think about your first relationships. Um, the first thing is this, first love is emotional. It's passionate. Uh, there's emotion in it. It's not empty and callous and, and dry. I, I can remember writing love notes to Elizabeth. You guys ever write love notes to your sweetheart, right? You write it on a piece of paper and then you fold it up and, and you write to Elizabeth from Nathan, I love you. And there's hearts. And man, I, Elizabeth may have some of those. But I pray that they are never seen by the general public because there's no telling what I said, right? Because when, when I was head over heels in love with Elizabeth, I didn't care what I said. Like, I didn't care what I did. Like, I didn't care what my friends thought about me. I, I didn't care about any of that. Like, there was just this passion behind it. Hey, baby, sugar, sweetie pie, honey bunny, sugar lips, whatever the names were, right? It was passion. Like, like you could look at us, and you could tell, like, it's completely gross, but they are in love. And, and like, 
That's what it's like when you first have a relationship. When the first love is there, it's emotional. You, you can't eat. You can't sleep. It's all you ever think about. Do you remember when your relationship with Jesus was like that? When you first realized what he had done for you, he had forgiven you of your sins and offered you grace and mercy and forgiveness and how much he loved you and how much he sacrificed for you. And there was a real emotion behind it, a real passion behind it. And here's what will happen if we're not careful. Over time, we lose our first love. And we can stand in a room like this and sing a song about a God that loved you so much that he sacrificed his only son, a God that gives you unconditional love and forgiveness of your sins, and that music can be going at maximum volume, and we can stand here straight up with no emotion and just sing it like this. Jesus loves you and the forgiveness and your eternity has been changed. What happened to the true love? What happened to the first love? It's emotional, right? And Jesus looks down at this church and he said, I know you're here. I know you're singing. I know you read your Bible. I know you pray. But you're standing there like a statue because there's no passion. There's no heart behind it. You don't mean it anymore. You're just doing it because you think you should or just to check off the boxes. You give out of obligation. You serve just because you know this is the right thing to do. I go to church on a Sunday because this is what good people do, isn't it? I mean, this is what church people do. This is what I need to do. And Jesus calls them out and says, you've lost that first love. You know, here's another attribute of first love. If you're thinking about, like, what does it mean to lose your first love? First love is extravagant, number two. It's emotional, it's passionate, like you can see it in people, but it's also extravagant. I can remember when uh, Elizabeth and I uh, went to college about 25 minutes away from each other, and uh, man, there were things that I did, money that I spent, ways that I used my time when Elizabeth and I were first dating and and when we got engaged that I look back on, I'm like, you are crazy. Like, why did you do that? Like, I look back on money that I spent when, when I was when we were in that point of our relationship, and I'm like, I would take that money back today. There are other ways I can tell you I love you, girl. Like, give me that money back. Give me that time back, right? But that's what first love is. That's what that initial love, it's extravagant. You don't care how much money you spend. Like, I was in college, full-time college student, did a work study on campus, and was the manager of a restaurant working tirelessly, and I spent all the money on me and Elizabeth. Didn't matter. I was head over heels with this girl. I did some things with my time with Elizabeth that I look back on and think, man, what in the world were you thinking? There was a Waffle House in the middle of our two schools, like 12 minutes this way, 12 minutes this way. And I can't tell you the amount of times where I would meet Elizabeth at the Waffle House at 2 a.m. Did I have a test the next morning at 8 a.m.? Absolutely I did. Should I be at home studying right now because I am ill-prepared for the test that's going to be happening in six hours? Yes, I am. But here I am at 2 a.m. with my sweetheart sitting at the Waffle House eating hash browns, scattered, smothered, covered. Doesn't make any sense, man. Have you seen the people in the Waffle House at 2 a.m.? That's dangerous. But here we are, two college students. Why? Because it's the first love. It's head over heels, man. You can't explain it. It's extravagant what we were doing. I would buy Elizabeth anything. I would do anything for her. I'd help her out and serve her any way I could. A total abandonment of whatever was comfortable for me or beneficial for me or whatever I wanted to do. It was, girl, whatever you want. 
where you want to go out to eat, what do you want to do, what movie do you want to see. You know how many romantic comedies I've seen in my life? I didn't want to watch any of them. Elizabeth's like, can we go see a movie? I'm like, yes, we can, girl. I would drive 25 minutes to her campus, pick her up, drop my laundry off because she would wash it for me. <laughs> we'd go see this movie. It was completely ridiculous to me. And then we'd go home and I'd drop her off and I'd drive back to school. No problem. Head over heels, man. That's what that love is. It's extravagant. My love for Elizabeth motivated me. Let me tell you this story. Uh, Elizabeth, um, she had this ice cream that she really liked. And it was a place in downtown Greenville called the Marble Slab. It's where, you know, they mix the different flavors on the, on the, the, the frozen marble slab. And I can remember one night, uh, we were talking on the phone about 9 o'clock. And uh, she, I was at my school. She was at her school. And um, she said, man, you know what would be good right now? Some marble slab. I was like, hold on, girl. I got in my car, drove 20 minutes to downtown Greenville, slid in right before they got closed, got this marble slab ice cream that she loved, drove 20 minutes in the opposite direction, brought it to her door, knocked on their door and said, who loves you the most, babe? Here's this. Here's this marble slab. You good? You need anything else? You got my clothes folded yet? What's up? <laughs> it didn't matter. 10 o'clock at night, a little pint of ice cream to cost $7? Don't matter. It's for Elizabeth. I love this girl. It's first love, man. It's true love. You know how fast that changes? Last week, <laughs> 9 o'clock at night, Elizabeth's in the bed. I get in the bed, slide under the, the covers, get situated. She turns over and she says, Nathan, I'm thirsty. Will you give me a glass of water? I said, girl, I just got in the bed, girl. You see me? I just got in here. I was out, Five seconds ago, I was outside the bed. You going to wait for me to slide into the covers and get comfortable? Tell me, go get me a glass of water. You ain't thirsty. You ain't that thirsty. Go to bed. You're not thirsty in your sleep. You can get a glass of water at 8 in the morning. She broke me down, though. I got up, mumbling the whole way. Just got out of bed, man. It's cold out here. I just get comfortable. I don't understand it. I go to the kitchen, I get the biggest glass we got, like Route 44 from Sonic. I fill it all the way up to the top with water. I'm walking into the bedroom, two hands like this, because I don't want to spill it. I put it next to the bedside. I said, now you drink every drop of that water. <laughs> made me get up in the middle of the night. You saw me, I just slid in there and got comfortable, and you made me get up and drink that water, girl. And occasionally Elizabeth will look at me and she'll say, you remember when you used to drive to a marble slab? at 9 o'clock at night just to get me ice cream. It's true love. It's first love. It's extravagant. You don't care how much it costs you. You don't care. Like, I, like I don't want to get out of the bed and walk 30 feet to get a glass of water. But, but back in the day, the first love, I, I dropped 30 minutes, one, di one direction, just to get her what she wanted. And Jesus looks at this church and said, remember when it was like that? Remember when you used to give and you weren't asking yourself, I wonder how I'm going to pay the bills the rest of the month. I wonder what else I could do with this money. You just did it. You bought a $7 pint of ice cream from the other side of the town, and it didn't matter. Remember when you didn't look at your clock and be like, man, how, how much time is this going to take? How much is this going to cost me? Do I really want to do this and serve the Lord in this way or serve others in this way? Remember when you used to just be extravagant and emotional in that? And Jesus looks at this church and says, see, it's gone. 
It's not like that anymore. I think about stories in the Bible where Mary, the story when, when this lady came to a dinner party where Jesus was and she broke open a, a jar of perfume that would have been close to a year's wages. And she pours it out on Jesus' feet. And everybody around the table is criticizing this girl. Like, Man, can you believe that? Look how much money she just wasted on Jesus. It's extravagant. She couldn't get over the fact of what Jesus had done for her. Jesus had forgiven her sins and brought her into a family and adopted her. And, and this woman's like, I don't care. A year's a perfume, spill it all. Give it to him. It was extravagant. It was emotional. Remember the scripture says she was crying over his feet and it wiped his feet, his dirty, nasty feet with her hair. Because that was her first love. She understood the sacrifice and the promise of Jesus and what Jesus had given her. And she didn't care. She didn't care that everyone was around her judging her. She didn't care how much money it was. She didn't care what she looked like in the process. And Jesus looks at the church of Ephesus and says, remember when it was like that with you? Remember when you were excited and thankful for what Jesus had done for you? When the sacrifice that he had given you on the cross was just completely overwhelming and took your breath away and it would bring you to a state of emotions and passion. Remember when, when you used to share with people what Jesus was teaching you and what Jesus had done for you? Remember, remember that first season when your life was changed by Jesus and you would invite everybody to church? Like you didn't care what they said. You didn't care who they were. They were just like, hey, Sunday, I'm going to church. You want to come with me? Can I tell you what Jesus has done in my life? Remember when you would read the Bible and just like dig into it and really just search for what God wanted for you? You remember when we used to pray and it felt like your communication, like the line of communication was wide open and you were enjoying that first love, that intimacy that you have with God? That's what Jesus says, you know, you're doing all these things. You have the deeds and you're serving and you're giving, but there's no heart behind it. There's no passion. And Jesus makes an interesting statement here, an observation. He says, doing the right thing with the wrong heart can become the wrong thing. And I don't want to be a church that does the right thing with the wrong heart. I don't want to be a group of people that jumps through all the hoops and shows up and serves and gives out of obligation or because we have to. And we lost our first love. We lost, we forgot what it was like for Jesus to change our lives. My mom used to have this uh, little plaque uh, in our kitchen growing up. It was like crocheted or embroidered or something, and it says, if you don't feel close to God, guess who moved? The point is, it wasn't God. God didn't back away from you. God didn't turn his back on you. We forgot the first love. And so Jesus actually just really kind here in verse five. He says, you want to rekindle that? You want to know what that feels like again? You want to move from obligation and just doing it because you feel like you have to and check a box off and, and go back to the passionate, extravagant relationship that you used to have when you first met Jesus? He closes with verse five. He says, consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. It's so serious to Jesus here that he says, man, if you guys continue to do the right things with the wrong hearts, I'll shut the church down. 
Thousands of churches in America close every year. The lampstand gets removed. And it's not because they didn't give, not because they didn't do the right things, not because they didn't read the Bible, but sometimes it's because they did the right things with the wrong heart and the wrong motives. Three steps right here that Jesus says. If this is you, like if you're like, man, I, I want that rekindled heart. I want that relationship to be what it used to be. Man, I can remember having that intimacy, like being excited about my relationship with Jesus. Here's what he says. The first thing is remember. You see what he said? He says, look back at how far you've fallen. Look at where you were when it all started. Remember when you were overcome by the forgiveness and the grace and the mercy and the love and the sacrifice of Jesus. And you need to look back and, and remember that. Like sometimes when I, when I meet with married couples and they've been married a while, but they say, man, it's just like, just, just the, the flame seems to be out and we're, it's not the same anymore. And I think, well, like, let, let's look back. Think back to those times where, where you'd get up in the middle of the night and drive to the Waffle House just because you loved each other. Think back to the $7 pint of ice cream that you used to do. Like, think back of where you were. Reconnect to that, the, the woman or the man of your youth that you fell in love with. Take some time to remember why you love each other so much. And here Jesus says the same thing. Man, you used to be a church that was so fired up. It was in love with me so much. Think back on that. Remember what that was like, what that excitement was. First of all, remember. Then he says, secondly, repent. He says, when you look back, maybe you'll notice a time, maybe in your life where you realize, you know, my relationship with Jesus was, it was going, man. It was strong and it was moving in the right direction. But it seems like there was a point, a season, a time in my life where it was a fork in the road. And God stayed where he said he'd always be. And, but maybe some actions, maybe some decisions, maybe something went down in your life. And that was the moment where you begin to walk in the opposite direction. And the word repent literally translates into turn around. Go back to that point where you were walking side by side, where you had that love and the, the intimacy, where you knew the relationship with God was strong. Go back to the first love. And, and turn from that fork in the road back and turn back towards God. Repent of those things. And then finally, the last one he says, I want you to repeat it. Think about what you used to do. The relationship that I give older couples is, I, I, I ask him, I say, uh, do, do you guys still go on dates? And some people laugh at that. We're just like, man, we've been married for 25 years. What do you mean date? I don't have to date. It's like, nah, man, you need to date your wife. Remember those dates? You used to go out and have a good time stare into each other's eyes just enjoy being with one another like it doesn't have to be extravagant you remember when the love was so real that like you could get a five dollar little caesar's pizza and and watch netflix netflix wasn't even born when most of you were dating but that's fine but like watching a movie or whatever remember it doesn't have to be rich or extravagant or plain remember when it was just meaningful just to be with each other just to be in each other's presence like go back to that go on a date again redo the things that you used to do. Repeat those things that you did in the beginning and watch how your love gets rekindled. I think out of all of the letters to the churches, this might be the most relevant one for Revo. Because we've been rolling for 10 years now. We've been doing this Sunday morning thing for 10 years. And it's very easy to walk in those doors and stand up and sing and sit down and laugh or take some notes in your book and, and walk out. And as soon as 12 o'clock is over, back in your car and drive home. And Jesus, I'll see you next week at 11 o'clock. Re remember what it was like. 
Look back on that. Don't lose that first love because you've been following Jesus for a while now and don't let the newness wear off. Jesus gives us the outline. Remember, repent, and repeat. And my prayer and my hope for you is that you would rekindle that love, that emotional, extravagant love that you had when you first met Jesus. Somehow that that would be rekindled and that you would, Jesus would not look at our church and say, you have lost your first love. And what a, what a dangerous warning that I think we can avoid today if we'll simply remember, repent, and redo those things, repeat to remind ourselves of the goodness of God in your life and in mine. Can I pray for you? God, thanks for this example. For the warning that there's a possibility that we can serve and, and give and show up and sing and read our Bibles and, and yet miss what you've called us to. Miss the whole purpose behind it. God, that we can get into a routine that it can just become normal for us. That we can lose the emotion, that we can be void of any passion, that it can be just checking off the boxes. God, and that's not what you're looking for. God, help us to rediscover the first love with you. For it to be real for us an understanding of the sacrifice that you gave through your son Jesus, that it would be real, the, the love and the compassion and the forgiveness and the grace and the mercy that changed our life, God. I pray that we'd be reminded of that today and that we would not be accused of losing the love that we once experienced and shared and enjoyed with you. So God, give us the wisdom to know what to do with the words that we've just heard. Pray and ask those things in your son Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Revo Podcast. We believe everyone has a next step to take in their relationship with Jesus. If you would like more information on what that means for you, or if you have any questions about today's message, please email us at info at discoverrevo.com.